0: previously on Murder in Alliance.
1: I always thought she was very nice, very pretty. I can see why you fell in love with her. Kind of a relationship
2: behind the scenes because I was still dating somebody.
3: She was a really good person. She loved playing flowers. We did that a lot, we went for walks a lot. But she loves corny jokes.
1: They were good, but they had some bad qualities when they're together.
2: She's saying that she's pregnant, and I don't know if she is for real. and I don't know if the child is mine.
1: She actually cheated on him a couple of times.
2: And he said that she was murdered, that her mom had found her, that she was face down in a pool of blood. I'm hearing the words that he's saying, but they're just not making sense.
0: This is Murder in Alliance an active investigation into who killed Avon Lane I'm Maggie Freeling On April Fools Day 1999 Avon's mother Tanya arrived at 916 Divine Avon's house to take Preston to kindergarten around noon Tanya testified that she took Preston to school every day. She had seen Yvonne the day before, March 31st in the morning, alive and well. Sherman Lane, Avon's dad, also testified that he saw her alive the day of her murder, although he said he could not place a time. Anyway, it was routine for Tanya to arrive in the driveway and beep for Preston to come out. But on April 1st, no one came outside. So Tanya got out of her car and knocked on the door. Still nothing. She noticed the door was unlocked. She opened and called inside. Still nothing. Tanya said then she backed up to look at the balcony and see if Yvonne had come out that way, as sometimes she did. Now, the layout of 916 Divine is really odd. So to understand the crime scene, you need to understand the house. The entrance to 916 Divine is a ground-level door. When you enter that door, you're on the ground floor or first floor. When you walk in, there's a living room, utility room, and a set of stairs. You take the stairs, and on the second floor is really where everything is. Once up the stairs, you enter directly into the second living room area. Through there, straight ahead, is the dining room with the kitchen to the right. If you continue in a U-shape, to the right of the kitchen is a bathroom, the first bedroom, and then there's another set of stairs. That set of stairs leads to the third floor, Avon's bedroom. Going back down off the dining room to the left is a sliding glass door to the balcony that looks out over the driveway and Divine Street. So Tanya had opened the front door, but instead of stepping inside, she backed up to see if Yvonne was on the balcony. She wasn't. And as Tanya was looking, Vinny, Yvonne's four-year-old, came down the stairs from the second floor. When he got to about the third step, Tanya asked, where is your mommy, Vince? He responded, but she didn't understand him. Remember, he was developmentally delayed and sometimes hard to understand. So she went up the stairs and when she got to the top, she saw her 26-year-old daughter face down in a pool of blood. found in a pool of her own blood. Tanya testified that she was trying not to black out with her dead daughter directly in front of her. And she could hear the other kids, Brandon and Preston, crying in the second-floor bedroom. Baby Trenton was in his crib in Yvonne's room on the third floor. Tanya said she was thinking of going to get them across the house, but wasn't sure if someone was still in the house. Plus, she would have to walk through the crime scene, over her daughter, and she was concerned about contamination. So Tanya said she ran back down the steps, moved Vinny by his crib, which was in the ground-level living room, and told him to stay put. Then she went to the neighbor next door to call 911. Officer Ralph Petty was the first to respond to the scene. He testified that he got the dispatch call at 12.32 and arrived about three minutes later as he was at the McDonald's just a few blocks away eating lunch. He said when he arrived, Officer Rick Miller, who'd also heard the dispatch, pulled up at the same time as he did, and they both found Tanya Lane outside. Officer Petty testified that he left Officer Miller downstairs in the entry room and went upstairs and saw Yvonne face down on the ground with a dresser and TV tipped on top of her. That's when he ordered Miller to call a supervisor and detectives.
1: Right now, they tell me
2: it's a pretty bloody scene in there. So, gloves and buoys on this
0: one, It's that bad. I'll be playing clips like this one from A&E's Dead Again investigation on David's case they actually recreated the crime scene and had investigators go in and start from scratch. Holy A lot of blood.
1: I mean, there's just a massive amount of blood around her face. I mean, look at all the coagulation right here.
0: Petty testified that Yvonne was clearly dead, laying there motionless in a pool of blood, and he described her as looking pasty white. Unfortunately, I do not have any court audio of anyone describing the scene. Just transcripts, reports, and photos. Crime scene photos show Yvonne in white shorts and a white long-sleeve shirt. The white making the red blood pooling around her even more striking. Her body was facing the stairs, her feet pointing towards the dining room behind her. It looked like someone had tipped a dresser over, which would have landed on Yvonne's body, but it got caught on a baby walker that was between it and Yvonne. The TV was on top of her, and her head was tangled in the cords. Between her legs was a plant and a photo of an unknown child and a razor blade. Once police flipped her body over, they could clearly see her throat had been slit a gaping eight by four inches. Oh, she's got a massive neck wound. It looks like somebody... What is that, a
1: slice? It's a very clean cut. There's nothing jagged on it. Just one wound?
0: Yeah. wound is gaping. It looks like it hit her carotid artery. Oh, cut right through it. Blood splatter was on the walls and couch. Facing the couch, the left arm also had a pool of blood on it. Near the sliding door to the balcony was a large streak of blood on the floor leading towards Yvonne, like a drag mark. Those marks right there look like drag marks from the bottom of her feet. And there were splatters of blood dripping down the glass doors.
2: Hey look at the windows, got blood smear everywhere.
0: It was a gruesome crime scene, and it was also strange. Not only were her kids there, unharmed but outside on the porch, there were a couple of puppies huddled together. Yvonne's German Shepherd mix, Snaps, had recently given birth. There are photos of these puppies looking inside through the blood-splattered glass door. It's a jarring sight. Looking at the crime scene photos, the dining room is also striking to me. The dining table had two chairs at it, and to me, it looks like two people had recently been sitting there. Both chairs are pushed out and slightly turned away from the table, as if two people sitting there had just pushed away and gotten up. I can also see a pack of cigarettes closer to the left side of the table, but the lighter is in the middle, as though people were sharing it. When Officer Petty came up the stairs, he saw bloody footprints between him and the body. The blood looked mostly dry, he said, so he and Officer Miller decided to walk through the crime scene, no shoe coverings, and check the residence for a murder weapon or killer. That's when Officer Rick Miller found Preston and Brandon in their bedroom, the door locked from the outside. Petty said he went to the third floor and found Trenton in his crib. All the children were unharmed. Petty said that about 10 minutes later, after he and Miller arrived, Chief Dordia arrived and made his way to the second floor with a woman that Petty didn't know and was not law enforcement. Chief Dordia said she was a ride-along, but in a book written about the case, the author says it was actually his date, and he not only took this woman to the house, but he allowed her into the crime scene. Petty testified that they decided they needed to get the kids out of the house immediately. So he and Miller, with the help of Chief Dordia, tried to do so without forcing the kids to see their dead mother. But there was no way to get out of the house without walking by and pretty much over Avon. So Petty said that he and Miller took a blanket from the third floor bedroom and covered Avon's body with it. Again, He said that the blood seemed pretty dry, so he wasn't worried about smearing any evidence. Then he said the officers picked the kids up and walked them over Yvonne's blanket-covered body and out of the house. I asked Preston, who was six at the time, what he remembered from that night into the morning.
3: Um, it was getting late. It was dark outside, and my mom made me go to bed. And she asked me to go downstairs to lock the door. I got about a couple inches away from the door handle. Um, And I got scared, I still know. I was always scared of the dark anyway. So I ran back upstairs and she asked me if I locked the door and I told her yes. And um, we went to bed. Um, Me and Brandon, well Brandon woke me up probably somewhere in the middle of the night and he was trying to get out of the room, and we had a latch on the inside of the door and the outside of the door. And usually our door wasn't locked from the outside, but that night it was. And he kept pounding on the door, and nobody came to answer it. So then um, he was crying or the river, so I just grabbed him, and I took him to my side of the bed. We went back to sleep. And when we woke up, the police officers were there. A whole bunch of people—I mean, a ton of people—were inside the house.
0: Now, I would understand why the police might shield children from the crime scene. That makes sense. But it doesn't explain why so many decisions were made that compromised evidence in a murder investigation. The fact that Chief Dordia's date, a civilian, was allowed into the crime scene. That Officer Petty walked around without shoe coverings. That he put a blanket on Yvonne's body, potentially contaminating evidence on both her and the blanket. There is even a crime scene photo that actually shows an officer stepping over Yvonne's body, leaving a bloody footprint between her legs. I thought maybe these were oversights caused in part by the officers worrying so much about getting the children out of the house without seeing their mother's dead body. So I asked Preston about it. And the police said that they carried you and covered your mom with a blanket. Yes, I hear that all the time. No, they didn't. I'm the
3: one that covered Brandon's eyes
0: and I walked past her. Very shortly after the kids were removed from the house, Detectives John Leach, Lloyd Sampson, and Bill Mucklow arrived and ordered patrol officers Petty and Miller out.
4: Uh, The first major thing I've always learned is um, you have to preserve the scene uh, so the evidence doesn't get contaminated or destroyed.
0: This is Detective Mucklow in a 2008 deposition.
4: So on a murder homicide uh, scenario, Mm -hmm. the first thing we would do is call the Star County Crime Lab and they would send over a technician to go over and do the initial collecting Mm -hmm. and fingerprinting.
0: Crime scene techs and the coroner arrived and the investigation began. It's worth mentioning that animal control also came and took Yvonne's dogs. From the crime scene, detectives collected. Bed sheets, pillow cushions and couch coverings, scrapings and swabs of blood from the living room and stairs, kitchen knives, sections of flooring with bloody footprints, opened Coke cans from the bedroom and kitchen, a Marlboro cigarette pack and cigarettes from the kitchen table, a lighter, unopened condoms and penthouse magazines from Avon's bedroom, and two packages of Swisher Sweets cigars. Detectives also lifted and preserved fingerprints from the Coke cans and also a glass on the table. A tip also led them to a large kitchen butcher knife matching the set they'd found in Yvonne's kitchen a few blocks away. And that knife also had a print on it. Outside, neighbors and family members crowded the scene. A newspaper article from The Time described a neatly manicured lawn splashed with children's toys and a red sandbox cordoned off by yellow police tape. By now, Avon's father, Sherman, had arrived, as had Fred Cameron. That's the father of Eric Cameron, the on-again, off-again boyfriend mentioned last episode who fathered three of Yvonne's five children. At about 5 p.m., a neighbor walked by the bustling crime scene and stopped to talk to officers. In his police report, Officer Sampson noted that 20-year-old George Hale told officers that at about 9.30 or 10 a.m. that morning, he was walking to McDonald's, the same one just a few blocks away that Officer Petty was taking lunch at, when he noticed Yvonne's house. The witness had heard the puppies barking and looked over. Here's Sampson reading his report.
2: He advised he saw a white male about five foot nine, about 180 pounds, in his mid to late 20s, wearing blue jeans and a short-sleeved shirt with medium-length hair, exit the residence, carrying a garbage bag. He said the white male walked around the west end of the house. He said it did not look like anything out of the ordinary, and he kept walking.
0: Sampson noted this in his report, and that was it. Detectives were also canvassing the neighborhood. The neighbor across the street said she saw Yvonne on the night of the 31st. She said Avon was outside around 5.30 p.m. crushing soda cans, talking to a 40-year-old white man about 5'7 in a plaid shirt with curly, graying hair. Detectives were doing other preliminary interviews as well. Detective Mucklow said he tried to speak with Tanya.
1: And
4: it was just, you know, and I know it was a tough time and I had to... Extract information about who uh, Yvonne was hanging around, you know, what contacts she had and, you know, what happened prior and, you know, just, just basic information on her daughter and yeah. mm-hmm. she wasn't too much help at all. I mean, she was just, mm-hmm. the best way to describe it is like a zombie. She just wasn't, she wasn't there. I mean, every time I had contact with her, she was the same way. It was just like Mm -hmm. a shell of a person.
0: Eventually, Tanya and Sherman left with all four boys. While in the car, Tanya said that she asked Vinny who hurt mommy, thinking that since he was walking around the house, he may know something. Although he is intellectually disabled, the four-year-old said he saw a Josh, Jimmy, or Jeremy push mommy when they got home tanya said she called david Thorne's grandfather and told him to tell david what happened and she said to have david come pick up two-year-old brandon the son he shared with avon she testified that david was already supposed to pick up brandon that day if you remember from last episode when david got the news he was at work his grandfather called him.
2: I asked, what is it you need me to do? He's like, I need you to go over to her parents' house and pick up Brandon because they're there and they got police and everything at her house. So, I mean, I just told my boss's son right there, I was like, you know, I I gotta go and I'm, I'm half explaining what's going as I'm walking out the door and he's following me out to the car. So, you know... In the niceties of whatever, he's telling me, you know, call and say what's going on when you find out something.
0: David said he left work around 2 to go pick up Brandon.
2: So I shoot over to Sherman and Tonya's house. I I get there. I walk in the house. Her dad's coming up out of the basement with a load of laundry. Walks past me and he's like, Tonya's up here. They have like a bi-level house. So whenever I go up into the room, Tanya's face is just makeup streaks where she's crying, so I start talking to her, what's going on? And, you know, she could only tell me what it is that she knew. That
0: Yvonne was dead. So David said to let him know what was going on, and he took Brandon home. However, Brandon was just in his diaper. Remember he was put to bed and then his mom was murdered, and so he wasn't wearing clothes or pajamas. He's in a diaper in a single sock.
2: They didn't have they didn't have any clothes for him there because, you know, he didn't he didn't live there. But I went out to the car, I got a blanket and a little coat that I had that was just stuff in the car that I had that was his. I wrapped him up, put him in it, and that's that's how I brought him home.
0: What were you thinking when all of this went down? Like what was going through your head? I mean I can't even imagine.
2: Well, whenever I initially got the call and then I go over and I pick him up, I mean, just like shock and awe. It's like as if it's not even real, like something has to be wrong. You know what I mean? It can't be true. And then the realization of it coming in that this had actually happened. I mean, I felt bad for the family and, of course, for my son.
0: Sue Gless remembers that day, too. Who are you, and how did you get involved in the case?
1: I was a friend of the family in that I I worked in the town that they lived in, and it was really small town, and I worked at the post office where they got their mail. And I saw David here and there. I knew who he was. I'd spoken to him a couple times. I'd been to his sister's wedding. And uh, when his grandmother came in in uh, 1999 and— she came in immediately, and, and she was sobbing. And she asked me if, I, if she could speak to me privately, and I, I went outside with her. And she told me, Yvonne's dead. And I said, well, who's Yvonne? And she said, that's Brandon's mother. And I went, holy crap. You know, I, how? And she said she was murdered. And, I, I, I mean, you could have just knocked me over. I, I didn't know anybody that's ever been close to a murder case. So she said, David's on the way to the police department right now. She told me while she was at the post office. And she said, I said, what's going on? And she said he they want to have him p- give a statement and he's going down to speak.
0: And so this is where the case against David starts to unfold. Hey all, if you listen to my podcast, Unjust and Unsolved, you might be familiar with the wrongful conviction case of Jamie Snow. And I want to tell you about Jamie's own podcast, The Snow Files. Jamie has been in Statesville Prison in Illinois for nearly 30 years, serving a life without parole sentence. He was convicted of murdering Bill Little, a young teenager working at a gas station on Easter Sunday, 1991. Jamie to this day says he is innocent, and I believe him. And so, if you heard my podcast, I want you to know that Jamie actually has his own podcast told by himself from prison. And he not only Tells his story, but interacts and answers questions. I adore Jamie Snow. He is a funny, smart, fun, caring man and father, and he knows his case better than anyone. It is truly a rarity to get to hear the story told by the person who is convicted. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you will be shocked like I was by the misconduct in Jamie's case. I am thrilled to be able to promote Jamie's podcast, The Snow Files, right here, right now. His co-hosts are Bruce Fisher, Tammy Alexander, and Leslie Pyres. Season one was a deep dive into the trial and the evidence, new witnesses and taped interviews never before revealed. And season two, which is just released, focuses on the forensics, post conviction investigation, and new evidence. Each episode is bi weekly, and you can find it at snowfiles.com net and exclusive for murder in alliance listeners. You can email MIA at snowfiles.net with the subject line MIA to be entered to win a snowfiles hoodie of your choice, style and color. All entries will receive a free snowfiles wristband. Entries must be received by May 31st, 2021. Again, Jamie is an amazing human. It is absolutely tragic what has been done to him and his family for 30 years. Take a listen to the snow files, get to know Jamie, and see how you can help. David went down to the police station the day after Alain was found. As one of Yvonne's recent ex-boyfriends and one of the fathers of her five children, it's reasonable detectives wanted to speak with him, ask his alibi, see what he knows about who any suspects could be. But that's not what happened. Actually, David's grandfather had hired David a lawyer, He was smart and didn't want David to be railroaded. Except, unfortunately, the grandfather's good intentions seemed to have backfired in more ways than one. The day Yvonne was found, the police went over to David's grandparents' house to question David. David wasn't home, but they wound up speaking with his grandfather. It seems like they already knew that Yvonne had fairly recently asked David to pay child support because they were asking about money. Now remember, David's dad died by suicide when he was five. When that happened, David inherited a decent chunk of money from his dad, who had money from the military. David's grandfather was good with money, so he had David invest it. So the money was growing, and it was a lot. But that's not what David's grandfather told the police.
1: Did David have a money problems or something like that, they asked the grandfather, well, the grandfather is all about preserving your wealth. He knew good and well that David had $135,000 in that investment account, but they told he told the police he was broke because he didn't want them to take his money.
0: I'm sure David's grandpa was trying to help, but man, did it backfire. Now in the police's mind, they had motive. So
1: that's where they got that he didn't want to pay child support because he didn't have any money.
0: The police then told David's grandfather to have David call them. Immediately after the police left, David's grandfather called a lawyer for David, realizing what kind of situation his grandson was in. The next day, David did as he was told and called the police and went down to the station with his lawyer.
2: And I mean, within the first question, all of a sudden they're asking me how our relationship was, you know, where I was at and everything. And so I said, I'm here to help you. And they said, Well, help us help you. And I'm like, what do I need help for?
0: Right then, David's lawyer shut the interview down. And because of this, the police labeled David as uncooperative. They also found him suspicious. Again, because of his grandfather trying to help him. Samson mentions in a supplemental report that David's grandpa signed an affidavit asking for immunity. Apparently, David's grandfather thought it was possible Amy, David's girlfriend, had murdered Yvonne. He was aware of Amy and Avon's history and was trying to protect David. Without David's knowledge or permission and on a court document, David's grandpa wrote, quote, this was a blanket immunity per attorney Lentz, end quote. And that really sealed David's fate as the person of interest, An allegedly broke, single dad who has to pay child support and lawyers up after his ex-girlfriend and the woman he has to pay child support to is murdered. Oh, and he's also looking for immunity. I know you know, but your grandpa, he really unintentionally fucked you. Um... And, I mean, it's just like, you know, with the money thing and then the immunity thing. I mean, how did you ever, How did you feel towards your grandpa when you, you know, kind of thought back on some of this stuff?
2: I didn't know how to react to it. I mean, I was mad at him. We argued over it, but it was already said and done. I mean, there wasn't much that I could do at the time about it.
0: Did you ever hold a grudge about it?
2: I mean, to a certain extent, everybody holds a grudge whenever somebody screws them over for something, but I mean, I kind of figure that, you know, it was coming from a place of love, but, you know, ill advised and not knowing because none of us had ever been arrested or gone through anything like this. So, I mean, how do you act to it?
0: However, all of this was just one day after the murder there was still a ton of investigating to do. Plus, it's not like David was the only ex with a motive in Yvonne's life. Eric Cameron is the alleged father of three of her kids. Maybe he found out about the affair between Yvonne and David, or maybe he wanted custody. Here's Detective Sampson being deposed again.
1: So you remember uh, speaking with, did you, speaking with Eric Cameron? the father of three of her children. Mm-hmm. Did you yourself speak to him, or do you just know that he, somebody
4: could If you remember. He was ruled out as a suspect because he was in jail at the time.
0: Eric was in jail, so they went back to David. As I mentioned in the last episode, by all accounts, David and Yvonne were on good terms. Even Avon's parents testified at trial that David and Avon had an agreeable visitation schedule. David could take Brandon whenever he pleased, and David also had a solid alibi. The night of the murder, David was at his shoot-fighting class with his lion cub.
1: They couldn't put David there because David was taking a martial arts class that night, like three, four counties away. Mm. And he did it every single Wednesday night. He had been for a couple months. And they knew where he was. He had a lion cub with him that night. And so it was memorable to the people that were in the class that David brought his lion cub with him.
0: Even though both Eric and David had alibis, police still zeroed in on David. They started questioning his friends. Maybe there was an accomplice.
1: They needed a co-conspirator. So they interviewed two of his other friends, the guy that was with him that night and another guy, and tried to get them to say that
0: they did it. It's worth noting that this isn't a path they went down with Eric. Eric's alibi apparently cleared him. But David's alibi just meant he must have had help. They spoke to David's friend, Josh Clark, who was accompanied by his father. In that interview, they specifically say to Josh that they think David is suspicious because he won't talk to them. But Josh said he was with David that night and David was just being cautious so as not to get railroaded. They assured Josh they would never frame an innocent person for murder and just wanted to talk to him. Then they spoke to Josh McComb.
2: They just need you to come down to the to the station and we're just going to, you know, take a couple pictures of your car and, you know, no no big deal. And then they like interrogated me. He tried to like catch me up. You know, he would ask me one question that was, you know, like, is your name Josh McComb? And I would say, get ready to say yes. And then he would say, did you murder Yvonne? And I had to be like, yes to the first
1: question, no to the second question.
0: Josh is a longtime friend of David's. He said that police were questioning him hard about the murder. So you're saying they made attempts to get you to confess?
3: Yes. Same with Brian Davis, too, Amy's brother.
0: But his mother was also with him, so that interview also ended.
1: And uh, so they found Joe, and Joe was eager to please, and Joe just pulled over
0: like a chick chair. 18-year-old Joe Wilkes. He was a young kid that didn't really have
2: many friends. You know, he was kind of the underdog, for the lack of a better word. Joe was a
0: drifter. He had an incredibly rough childhood. His biological father was abusive, so he went into foster care. And allegedly, his foster parents abused him emotionally, physically, and sexually. Joe had severe learning disabilities and emotional trauma. Did you guys know each other well?
2: Yeah, no. I mean, I knew him and I knew him for quite a while. I was introduced to him through some other friends. I met him at parties, you know, through some mutual friends and everything. And he lived approximately one and a quarter miles away from me.
0: Joe eventually wound up homeless as a teen in 1997 or
2: eight. I'd see him, I'm driving into town, I'd see him walking, so I'd pick him up. I'd take him in to town, I'd taken him to work. And he was was he was sleeping in my car outside because his mom had kicked him out. So I'd let him in, he'd sleep on the couch.
0: At the time of the murder, Joe was actually staying with other friends. Over three months after the murder, Joe was brought into the police station on July 14th. By this point, the police had said on record that the case was cold. There were really no leads. They liked David for the murder, but with his alibi, there was nothing they could do. But as soon as they got their hands on Joe, they got a break.
3: He's always been talking to me, like, how much he wishes that woman was out of his life and that he could have his little boy. And then I, for years, I told him, keep me happy. I want nothing to do with it. And then what woman on. was that, Joe? Yvonne Lane. Okay. And then one day... I just lost everything and I didn't care about life no more. And David knew about it and he took advantage of me.
0: Joe confessed. He said David had hired him to kill Yvonne. Coming up next time on Murder in Alliance.
2: We are in the Detective Bureau the Alliance Police Department. We're investigating the homicide of Yvonne Lane. Can you tell us your part in this? I asked him what it was, and he
3: said to kill somebody, and at that point, I really didn't care about life or nothing. So why did David want this done? So David could have his little boy and He wouldn't have to pay so much money. So what did David <laughs> say to you? I'll pay you to do something for me. He asked me if I would do it, and I told him Yes.
0: Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining the unjust and unsolved Patreon. It shows how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonus episodes, Q&As, and events as a thank you. And please... Please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely we're going to get tips and leads and the right ears will be reached. Murder in Alliance is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. Aaron Case is our legal intern, and Bob Mallory is our engineering assistant. For more information and resources, go to murderinalliance.com. You can find Murder and Alliance on Twitter and Instagram at Murder underscore Alliance and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Murder and Alliance is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at ObsessedNetwork.com.